This is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time here in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. The 2020 movement to defend Black lives shook the globe as Black, Brown, and Indigenous people, overwhelmingly youth, protested state-sanctioned violence and worked to reimagine a world without policing or prisons. And the fight to divest from punitive punishment and invest in Black futures is far from over. While many people may see 2021 as a return to normalcy, we know that the current presidential administration comes from a history seeped in neoliberalism and law enforcement. This week on Race Capital, we have conversations about the state of the police state. First, we'll speak with members of Virginia Student Power Network, Mikey Ramlogan, Mickey Charles, and Sarandon Elliott about the youth anti-policing movement. And later, we hear from organizer and cultural critic Amber Starks, where we dig deeper into policing under the new federal administration. First, we start with the reframe. You're listening to the Race Capital Reframe on the week of Wednesday, January 27th, 2021. With me, Naomi Isaac. And me, Kalia Harris. And me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. Let's dive into the local news. So in the eviction watch, this week there are 174 unlawful detainers on the books. The heaviest day was Tuesday with 67 unlawful detainers. This week, Biden extended the federal eviction moratorium until March 31st, which could slow the rate of evictions. Just as a reminder to our listeners that unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant. Health research data from UCLA has shown that expiring eviction moratoriums and evictions have contributed to thousands of deaths in the United States. On Tuesday, Richmond City Council Public Safety Committee, comprised of Chairwoman Riva Trammell, Vice President Anne Lambert, Andreas Addison, and Ellen Robertson, voted two to one to recommend that the full council approve Ordinance 2020-117 that would renew the Memorandum of Understanding between RPD and the VCUPD allowing them to share RPD's new record management system. Council members received hundreds of emails from concerned Richmond residents who urged them to oppose this ordinance. In the end, Riva and Ellen voted yes, with Lambert voting no. Addison also voiced his support for the ordinance. The ordinance will be voted on by the full council on February 8th. Councilwoman Lambert, for being new to the committee, but also being VP, I thought made a really bold stance to first have some particular questions about this particular MRU and asking questions to bring up the hundreds of emails and to even specifically say that I think the number of 100 was was named and Councilwoman Lambert actually said that she thought it was way more than 100 and that this was an important process and that she felt like it could be, it should have been continued. And we need, just need to remind people that this is a conversation that has been going on since 2019, at least when uh, the conversations of a new records management system started. And of course, we found out that it was a predictive policing model. So this is just something that number one, we didn't want RPD to have. So we definitely don't want RPD and VCU to have it. 
And I think what was evident is that there's just overwhelmingly a lack of transparency. There's too many questions coming from the community and not enough answers that actually get to the root of those questions. You know, they'll say a lot of, they just say a lot of uh, things, but not actually address any of the problems that the community has with the renewing the agreement. And so like for me, it's, we don't even know officially what the new records management system is. We don't have any information about how it's been used historically. So I, I think those are important questions that need answers and, and uh, should be considered like Councilwoman Lambert was saying before they move forward with just voting on it when there's obviously so much, so many opinions coming from the community. And to be clear, Gerald Smith answered some of these questions. He said that it will be used for trends and patterns, which to us, we know that means predictive policing and surveillance. And they truly tried to gaslight us at this meeting yesterday and say that it wasn't surveillance. He said it over and over. And then he said trends and patterns about triple the amount of times that he said that surveillance lie. And I think that folks really need to understand that we have to listen to what Gerald is saying. He is telling us exactly how they intend to use this and they want BCUPD to also have access to that data so that they can tag down those trends and patterns. Yeah, he also mentioned about how it will be used to, you know, track different areas of the city where there is high crime. Like, I don't know how you can argue that that doesn't lead to surveillance or over-policing. And it is totally a possibility to not have this agreement. Like VCU has one of the nation's largest campus police forces, 95 officers, over 200 security personnel, and a huge budget. There's no reason that they need access to anything that allows them to police outside of their jurisdiction. In fact, they should be reducing VCU's jurisdiction. And this is what black and brown students have been saying. It's what black and brown Richmonders have been saying since they expanded the jurisdiction in 2019. So for our new counselors, for folks that are new to this, realize that this is something that is has been going on for years. And when hundreds of concerned Richmonders come and share their experience and their concerns, we cannot have counselors that are questioning if they're Richmond residents or thinking that they don't understand what they're talking about. We're already anticipating that the Stony administration is going to come out with some statement that gives us, quote, clarity, end quote, on all of these things to make sure that we understand what it's for. But we don't need clarity for what we already know, that this is going to increase policing in Richmond. And don't forget, it's almost budget season, y'all. And Ellen says she's already expecting tens of thousands of emails to defund the police. So we got to make sure we follow through on that. <laughs> the Virginia Dogwood reports that Dominion Energy is the top corporate donor for political elections in Virginia. They gave over $1.3 million to political races across the state from 2020 to 2021 and over $10 million in the last decade. Despite that, the lawmakers in the Virginia General Assembly rejected legislation that would place many limits on corporate political donations and several other campaign finance proposals. This means Virginia will remain one of five states with no restrictions on corporate contributions, VPM reports. And in other news, Virginia legislator Delegate LaCherise Aird has a bill to declare racism a public health crisis. In Virginia, it passed subcommittee on Friday and is headed to the House floor for a full vote. Another bill headed through the legislature is one to remove the statue of segregationist Harry F. Byrd Sr. 
from the Capitol grounds, which passed through House committee last week along party lines with surprise, surprise, all Republicans voting against it. And in other legislative news, the bills for equity and financial aid and ban the box for those with felonies in higher education have both passed subcommittee and are headed to be heard in full House committees. Speaking of more legislative news and marijuana updates, last night the House heard the bill in subcommittee and we'll hear it again on Thursday. The House bill will also go to courts and then appropriations. Now, we have to remember that the Senate must also still hear the marijuana bill in judiciary and finance. With crossover happening on February 6th, it's a race through all of the committees for equitable marijuana legislation. There's a host of other bills going through the General Assembly right now, we will continue to use our platform to share updates. For everyone that was listening last week, the anti-bail fund bill was killed in committee, and now we're continuing to watch the critical housing bills, as well as things like abolishing the death penalty that's made it to the Senate floor. And we also need to continue to watch what's happening with mandatory minimums. Wow, so much out of the legislature. I know I have certainly been sitting in the subcommittee. Chelsea, I know you have. Naomi, you have too. So how are y'all feeling about it? I can't believe next week is crossover. I'm really excited at the work that a lot of community members have done to make sure that racial justice and equity stay at the forefront of legislation. Uh, We're seeing it all across the board when it comes to like the way that we're managing incarceration, the way that we're dealing with housing and the way that we're dealing with legalizing cannabis. So I'm really excited at all the work that people in the community have done and the effort that they really put into making sure that legislators are considering Black lives still. Yeah, being a part of killing that anti-bail fund bill was exhilarating. It was really empowering to see folks from bail funds all over the state, community members come together and really just make sure that that thing never came back and that decarceration is still a possibility in our state. So keep fighting to everyone that's out there testifying and hopefully we'll see some semblance of change. Yeah, I think a lot of people see it as though, you know, like the legislature can be slow when it comes to progress, but we have still have the opportunity to make sure that we're disrupting a lot of the harm that they have the opportunity to expand. And that's really important and why you should really keep an eye on what's happening in the legislature. You really nailed it on the head, Naomi, that a lot of the work in the legislature is about us restricting any further harm that they could possibly do. And that's a lot of our work, particularly as folks that are fighting for Black lives. And in other news, community advocate and mental health professional Richard Walker has announced his candidacy for the 71st House of Delegates seat that is currently held by Jeffrey Bourne. He says the constituents, quote, deserve a delegate who is beholden to the people, not corporations, end quote. I got something to say. We have to also remember Richard Walker was huge for his Union Hill resistance with Dominion out in Buckingham County. I know that wasn't in his press release. It it talked about a lot of his decarceration work, as well as bridging the gap in his work there. But I really want folks to remember Richard Walker was huge when it came to speaking out against Dominion and everything that was happening in Buckingham. On 6 a.m. Monday morning, the Virginia Department of General Services and the Capitol Police descended upon Marcus David Peters Circle to erect fencing around the circle and the statue to, quote, prepare it for removal, end quote. The state has restricted access to the site, including to groups like the MDP Kitchen and other mutual aid efforts that have been ongoing in the circle since the uprisings. There's still no word on when the litigation will be done in the courts to remove the statue, and the community has spoken out in opposition to the 
this new fencing. I talked to VPM about this earlier this week. And besides the fact that I think that the fence presents a blank canvas for the community to consider, I also think that this is very much another barrier for Black people to perform mutual aid and to just be able to go into the community healing space. Like it has not sped up the litigation. We don't know when it will be removed. And so it's really just causing all types of additional policing and enforcement down at the circle. And especially when it's a mourning site for all of the Black lives that we've defended and lost over this past year, it seems really disrespectful on top of the fact that the site or the circle, which honors Marcus David Peters, you know, he still has yet to receive any justice by the Richmond police. It's just a multi-layered performance of violence. Yeah. And not to mention that the memorials that are still in the circle are now inaccessible to the community. So they're saying and really touting that they're not going to mess with the memorials until the removal happens, but we can't actually access the memorials whatsoever. And so that's just really harmful and traumatic. The family of Xavier Hill held a memorial service last Saturday to celebrate the life of Xavier, the 18-year-old Charlottesville resident who was murdered by Virginia State Police in January 9, 2021 in Goochland County on Interstate 64. After the service, the community rallied to demand that the dash cam footage be released. The family maintains that Xavier told police that his door was open and that his hands were up. The police have continued to refuse to release the footage, and the Charlottesville community will be holding a demonstration this Saturday to demand justice for Xavier. I was actually at the memorial service that took place last Saturday, and to see, you know, people from all across the Commonwealth come out and be concerned about this case was really moving, uh, the energy that was out there in the streets, but also the reaction from the Goochland County police officers. If more people would have been there to see the way that there were white supremacists coming out in the street, that the... I actually had a police officer tell me that he's going to be here next week when the the cops shoot the next black person, you know, with a smile on his face. And this is this was the attitude of the Goochland County police. And so it's a constant reminder that the police actually cannot be reformed because a lot of times people will be like, drop your badge or try to convince the police to have some consideration for the life that was lost. But time and time again, they prove that they actually don't care about the people that they murder. And Kalia, you had brought up in our particular chat that this particular CA of the Goochland County, not only as a prosecutor, but also used to be a, a cop as well. Yeah, actually, one of the wonderful student organizers brought this up. And one of our listeners actually brought up this point that the CA did, in fact, used to be a state trooper. So moving on to national news, we'll kick it off with our COVID-19 watch. So nationally, there's 25.1 million total cases and 419,827 deaths from COVID-19. In Virginia, we have over 480,000 cases and 6,174 deaths. Also, breaking news, the new COVID-19 variant has been identified in an individual in Northern Virginia who had no recent travel history. This new variant, known as B117, is thought to be twice as contagious as the dominant strain in the United States. So in vaccine news, it is still being distributed. Joe Biden has a new national goal for vaccinations. And Richmond Times dispatch reporter Sabrina Moreno reports that Virginia has not recorded the race and ethnicity data for over half of the people 
who have received the coronavirus vaccine, and there is little evidence to show that this practice is going to change anytime soon. While the CDC guidelines list reporting race and ethnicity data as a requirement, the Virginia Department of Health spokesperson Aaron Beard says that the VDH will not collect this data because they claim that the more data that is required to document for vaccines, the more likely that a provider will not report the vaccination at all. So that's just not factually founded. So this is the Virginia Department of Health choosing not to follow the CDC guidelines of recommendations in order to fully capture the community that's being served in order to find the disparities. Okay, I just wanted to be clear that we are choosing not to do best practices. Okay, great, great, great. And to top it all off, Virginia, one of the only states that is governed by a doctor, ranks 49th in the country for percentage of vaccines distributed, only followed by Kansas. So wait, a doctor is our leader of the Commonwealth and he's choosing not to take care of Black lives? That doesn't seem... No, actually, it seems cor- completely correct. All right, cool, cool, cool. Doesn't Virginia also have at least three of the top 10 hotspots in the U.S.? Is that correct? Or did I imagine that? Yes, including Richmond County, which is site to quite a few jails. So just putting that out there. Just probably why their rate is so high because of the jails and prisons that are consolidated right in that one little area, y'all. And they call it jobs. Well, more in pandemic news, during the course of the pandemic, the 10 richest men in the world have seen their combined wealth increase by half a trillion dollars during the course of the virus. They are profiting during a pandemic, and this is enough money to vaccinate every person on Earth. Every person. Every Every person. Capitalism will kill us. People out here worried about COVID, capitalism will kill us. And it'll use COVID. To kill us and then profit off of it. The 10 richest men in the world could vaccinate everyone on this earth. Who got the address? Where's the Venmo? Where are the hackers? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, 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 okay. The U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI are considering not bringing charges against the hundreds of people who entered the Capitol building on January 6th. Surprise! Not to us. Well, while some people have been identified and charged, the federal officials are debating about whether or not to charge everyone involved because people were engaged in, quote, wide variety of behaviors, end quote. The Washington Post reports that, quote, due to the wide variety of behavior, some federal officials have argued internally that those people who are known only to have committed unlawful entry and were not engaged in violent, threatening, or destructive behavior should not be charged, according to the people familiar with the discussions, end quote. This comes as NPR is reporting that more than 140 people charged for the riots on the Capitol on January 6th, nearly one in five served in the military. So yeah, I'm sure there are some inside people that are trying not to charge everybody. If we're seeing 20% of them are in the military some kind of way. I've never seen protesters or rioters, whatever they want to call them. I've never seen them have this discretion where they consider that there might have been a wide variety of behaviors. That's some new. That's new. When did they start doing that? Where was that over the summer when they arrested at least 10,000 anti-racist protesters who didn't storm the Capitol? (laughs) And they're actually looking into the DOJ to see if there was any inside job 
done even there with working with Trump. So it's a hot mess, but it's a mess that we already knew existed. So and it's a hot mess that's happening at home and across the country in Seattle. So y'all, a video emerged of a Tacoma police officer driving an SUV into a group of protesters on Saturday, sending at least one person to the hospital. Now, Does this sound familiar to anyone else? I remember we had a particular episode where someone actually came on our show and talked about their experience by being hit by a car, not just a car, a Richmond Police Department car, while on a bike. And then what do we hear after that? Oh, right. That's when the city attorney's video got leaked of the Richmond mayor, LeVar Stoney, talking about making this particular investigation draw out to take a long time in order to not have attention around the violence that the police were having with the protesters. And so as we were reporting what's happening in Seattle, it's interesting how things that have happened right here at home have just kind of gone away. But again, it's like, well, look at the federal level as well. Look at how easily they're making that go away. So this this ain't reform. Well, if you're wondering what's going on with the next stimulus checks, key moderate Republicans in the Senate dismissed quick action on President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion economic package, which would have included $1,400 stimulus payments. Many Republicans are urging Democrats to dial back the plan, saying that a stimulus package with that large of a price tag would need to be justified. Y'all. Not justified. Are you kidding me? Not only that, but they're talking about the $1,400 checks. What happened to 2K? No one ever said to minus the 600. What? Yeah. Wait, yeah. How did we lose the 600? I totally forgot about that. It's been so long and that still don't add up to 12 months of payment. So like I, I didn't even understand, but yeah. How did we diminish the price when we know that folks have been unemployed for over a year now? You know, there are folks who've been struggling for over a year and the most they have to offer them is less than $2,000. Yeah. And not only that, but they did not hesitate to bail out big corporations, everybody and their mama that wasn't us, the people, during this coronavirus pandemic. And the moment that it comes to people getting even a crumb, a red cent, now we got to dial it back. I thought the Democrats had a majority. So how are the Republicans... Right? Isn't that what this or is this this unity thing that we we need to not fight down to the tiebreaker with the VP and not do that every time? Is that what this is? Because I'm pretty sure that's why everybody went so hard in Georgia, right? Unity just means conceding on social justice at every point in time. And in other news from Joe Biden, his first days in office have come with many executive orders and new changes. So We're just going to run down a few of them with a little analysis. He signed an executive order on Tuesday that orders the Department of Justice to not renew contracts with privately operated detention facilities. About 8% of incarcerated people are held in private prisons, and this executive order won't do anything to free those people. It also does not include the Department of Homeland Security and ICE immigrant detention centers. As of January 2020, ICE detained 80% of immigrants in its custody within private facilities. So we're going to need a little bit more. In addition to ending the Keystone XL pipeline, Biden continued a slew of climate justice legislation, including recommitting the United States to the Paris Climate Agreement. But Naomi, I feel like I saw you post something about the Paris Climate Agreement and Biden. Well, I'm basically just talking about how it's really a sham because it doesn't 
go far enough to actually correct any of the climate injustices that are happening. Like it's a bunch of capitalist countries who are making again, like this symbolic gesture of actually doing something to tackle climate change. Meanwhile, they're not doing anything to stop militarism, which we know is the biggest cause of pollution. You know, the U.S. military being the biggest emitter of carbon emissions. So that was kind of what I was talking about. Biden has also signed many immigration executive orders to reverse Trump era legislation including a pathway to reunification for families separated under Trump. But many advocates are asking what his plans are to rectify the harm done through mass deportations done under the Obama-Biden administration. Under the Obama administration, more than 3 million people were deported. Biden also signed an order for a 100-day stay on deportations, which has been challenged by a GOP Trump judge from Texas. Well, more symbolic gestures from the federal government. The effort to put abolitionist and freedom fighter Harriet Tubman on the face of the American $20 bill has been restarted under this administration after efforts were halted under Trump. This has come under fire from many racial justice activists who are demanding real change for Black people. Shame on them for acting as if our ancestor, Harriet Tubman, who stole herself from the Deep South. Yeah, who made her life's mission to actually rob the U.S. of capital, right? When capital was black bodies. And they have the audacity to put her on a a $20 bill that currently has Andrew Jackson, arguably one of the worst on that bill. And I just find it like the idea of putting Harriet Tubman on American capital disgusts me. And like the idea of putting any person who comes from a divested community on a dollar bill just seems disrespectful to me. Just remembering in Harriet Tubman's time, an enslaved person was more viable than land. Like having a certain amount of owning people, right, was was more money. And speaking about abolition, I want to go back to really quickly, there is a piece of legislation out there that would create an abolition day to celebrate when we abolished slavery. Now, I did not realize that more people had signed on to this, but I know that some folks have been asking and talking to the legislators on this particular piece to take their name off because slavery wasn't abolished. This is an opportunity to cover up any real conversations about slavery and what that looks like in current day. And I think it's important to bring that to people's attention, not to celebrate anything like an abolition day while people are still out here really fighting for freedom and liberation. While people are still out here incarcerated in cages, the audacity of them to establish an abolition day, this is another example of just empty symbolism. How can they talk about abolition on stolen land? That doesn't make sense. Biden has also introduced a $4 billion program that would provide Central American countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador with so-called aid. This money does not compare to the military aid that the United States has given to overthrow leftist governments in Central America, which has greatly contributed to the forced migration north. And honestly, when I heard about it, I like I was pretty mad to hear this because it is symbolic change. Like if you've ever spoken to someone who is from Central America, who lives in Central America, you understand the role of military intervention, specifically U.S. military intervention in the destabilizing of their politics. And so when we are covering stuff like protests happening in Guatemala and things like that, we really have to put together the pieces that U.S. imperialism is still happening in Central America 
And that's another part of this immigration conversation. And I just wanted to wrap out all of this symbolic change with Joe Biden with a quote from another freedom fighter and abolitionist, Fannie Lou Hamer, who said, I'm sick of symbolic things. We are fighting for our lives, period. Period. Okay, so in Kentucky, grand jurors in the Breonna Taylor case are filing an impeachment against Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who oversaw the case, accusing him of misleading and lying to the jury. I just find that not shocking, but so appalling. Like, we know that these attorney generals, these prosecutors, they lie to the jury. They're able to withhold evidence and just craft whatever story that they want. And we know that Breonna Taylor was killed by the police. And that's just irrefutable. It's the truth. And the idea that the jurors are coming out and saying that he lied. You need to really keep an eye on that. Right. And again, how closely tied these uh, CAs are to the cops and how we can keep an eye on that at home as this year in 2021, we are electing a new Commonwealth attorney. Okay. And back to the federal government, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Cori Bush are leading the charge to urge Biden to commute the sentences of all 49 federal prisoners left on death row. Days after the Trump administration finished to rush to kill 13 such prisoners. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the bare minimum. And this is another opportunity he has to demonstrate whether or not he will repeat a very violent record when it comes to the way that he treats incarcerated people, as well as Kamala. This is both their opportunity. Moving into international news, the president of Mexico has tested positive for COVID-19. His diagnosis has renewed criticism in the way that the government has handled the pandemic. Mexico currently has the world's fourth highest death toll from the virus. In Brazil, car rallies went through more than 20 cities on Saturday, demanding the resignation of far-right President Bolsonaro over his handling of the pandemic. Brazil currently has the world's second highest death toll, only after us, the United States. In Tunisia, protesters took to the streets of the capital on Saturday to protest police repression, economic conditions, and corruption. Over 1,000 protesters have been detained during the demonstrations over the last few days, Democracy Now! reports. That's a reminder that anti-policing movements have not stopped. They've been facing a lot of co-optation, dilution, repression, as well as everyone globally going through the conditions of the pandemic. But people are still out in the streets standing up against uh, state oppression. So you should watch what's happening globally. And lastly, out of Mozambique, thousands have been displaced and over 100,000 hectares of cropland have been flooded by downpours after tropical cyclone Eloise tore through the country on Sunday. I don't really have much to say about this other than we know that the climate crisis is affecting, it's killing Black people all over the world, and it's destroying people's livelihoods, their homes, their culture. When you lose your home and your connection to the land, that is your culture that is being affected by climate change. And as people like Joe Biden and his administration, the whole 46 administration, do this symbolic change, it's not like it's far off. Climate change is happening now. People are dying now. And I think that that's just something that we really have to take super seriously. All right. That is all for the Race Capital Reframe. Next up, you will hear from some student organizers from Virginia Student Power Network. (music) 
You're listening to WRIR 97.3 LP, Richmond Independent Radio. All right, so we are joined here today in the Race Capital Studio with another BSPN takeover. I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves to you all. Hey, y'all. My name is Sarandon. I go by she, her pronouns, and I am a student at the University of Virginia. I'm also a member of BSPN, and I'm also chair of the Young Democratic Socialists of America at UVI. My name is Mikey. My pronouns are he, him. I work with Virginia Student Power Network and I'm a board member at Student Power at VCU. Hey everyone, my name is Mickey. I'm also a student at VCU. I'm on the board for Student Power VCU and I'm also part of Virginia Student Power Network. I want to sit down and talk with y'all about, you know, the current presidential news, uh, the emergence of the Biden and Harris administration. I just wanted to gauge you all's reaction as youth, you know, who have been protesting against the police state and, and policing and prisons for about a year now, what your reaction is to having two people who have been huge proponents of uh, policing and expanding the carceral state, what does that mean to you? How are you feeling on inauguration night? I think for me, it comes in uh, two forms. Number one is I, I continually get this reminder of the co-optation of like anti-policing movements in America. Um, like I'll think about how, especially during the summer, there were these like vast efforts, especially by politicians to say that there's going to be changes, but then also we have these reminders, especially with like uh, the VP choice, how are we going to see change being implemented? So I think that is initially something that really resonates with me. And then also just the difference in, in messaging. Yeah. I'm not feeling too hopeful, but I, I think it's really important for us to recognize that there's still a lot of work to be done. We just kind of got to put the foot on the gas in terms of our anti-policing movements, really like spreading awareness to the general public about stuff that we already know is true. And then not letting these people get a second to really breathe and letting them like continue with really not implementing real change, but saying they are. Yeah, I think for me, looming like on the night of inauguration, I was honestly shocked to see the amount of toxic positivity that I was seeing on social media and the amount of people posting, you know, and their Biden swag and Kamala Harris swag and all them AKAs in their posts. It was really confusing to me because these were the same people all summer posting defund the police at protests, talking Black Lives Matter. And the lack of consistency that I was seeing with what people were saying and how many people were, you know, saying, at least it's not Trump. Now we can hold him accountable, saying kind of trust the process almost. And it was really like baffling to me. It's almost like we know the system is terrible, but we have to work within it. And I'm like, this is conformist ideology. This is not, this is not consistent with what needs to happen. We've been shouting all summer what needs to happen. Y'all were on board with it. And now it's almost like people are content. And that's like the last thing people need to be. So I think just with kind of the Biden-Harris inauguration and everything, I think that I have a lot of complex feelings about it. And I think that, you know, it's important to allow myself to have complex feelings about it, you know, on one hand, like, you know, Donald Trump was a monster and there's no doubt about that. However, we all know that every single American president has been a monster 
and also something that you know was really frustrating for me as well is seeing people being like oh you know this is going to be a healing process for America I'm pretty sure like Biden said that those like exact words like healing process for America but however like I think the way people tend to talk about Trump was that he was like the disease like he was fascism however like I think we all know like fascism American you know imperialism and neoliberalism has been around for like four centuries and so I think it's really important to also remember that as well I also see that Donald Trump was like a product of the Democrats failure and so yeah I think that I have a lot of complex emotions about it and Saranda I also wanted to get to you because I know that Biden, you know, continues to reference Charlottesville as, you know, what inspired him to run. Ibi Han, the executive director of Virginia State Student Power Network, recently spoke with the New York Times talking about all the ways in which it's ingenuine. What are your thoughts being someone who's been on UVA's campus during the rise of white supremacy? Yeah, I think it is very not genuine. You know, I think that if Biden and I think if Democrats in general really wanted to tackle white supremacy, you know, they would, they would tackle it and they would actually, you know, not be lip service, um, basically, especially with kind of like Biden's, like just the way that he kind of like tried to like pander, like him and Kamala to like black voters, like not really, you know, pushing for real like substance change. So yeah, I think that it was very disingenuous and also I think that if we are going to tackle things like white supremacy, you know, we have to take, you know, frankly, like an anti-capitalist stance, right? Like that is, especially being at the University of Virginia, that used to be a slave plantation. Like, again, like white supremacy is nothing new to Charlottesville, right? It's nothing new to Virginia. It's been here for literally centuries and it's been a process and it's been built on top of years of slavery, of, you know, Jim Crow, of, you know, eugenic science that was at the university what happened August 11th, August 12th in Charlottesville, that, that's nothing new. And I think that, again, people, we haven't been actually like tackling the root issue, which is like racialized capitalism. Mm. And that was a message that was very consistent with the youth protests over the past year. Folks weren't only protesting the deaths of Black people like uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Maude Arbery, but they were also protesting this failing, as you said, uh, Sarandon, racial capitalist system in which we live in that during a pandemic is literally facilitating mass genocide of Black and brown people globally. And so I know that, like I said earlier, you all were involved in the protest movement of last year. Can you talk about your experience just taking on the police state as, as a youth activist? It's a lot. It really is. To sum it up, all of the experiences, the violence, the fear, the anger that you experience after weeks and months of just trying to protect yourselves and protect your communities and physically put your body out there day after day, demanding the same things and to be met with such violent, weaponized state oppression, actually going out into the streets and actually being with communities that have been battling this for so much longer than you have. It's nearly impossible to really cope with everything because for me, I haven't been out there that long. This summer was the first time that I have really been involved in protests, that I have really been involved in community organizing. And I sit here and I think about all my comrades who have been doing this for so much longer than me. 
and the ability that they have and the bandwidth they have to get up every day and keep fighting, it just motivates me even more. But the burnout is is real. And burnout's been a huge discussion post-summer because, like you said, it's emotionally exhausting, it's financially exhausting, uh, it's physically exhausting to continue to, you know, have to go out and defend your right to live. And then post the summer, it seems like a lot of the issues that everyone was seemingly so passionate about have just become trivialized because uh, the national dialogue has gone away. It's hard to not feel that burnout because at the end of the day, it's really the same people you see standing up talking about the same stuff. So I think there's like definitely that burnout that I feel following the summer. And then it's also just like a a serial frustration because it it doesn't have to be that way. You know what I mean? Like the people who came out in in spades and in droves and were saying, oh, this is injustice, this is injustice. A lot of them aren't aren't saying that stuff anymore. Where they at? (laughs) Yeah, where they at? Because it's like, you just have to use your voice, honestly. And I think that's the most frustrating part seeing a lot of uh, slacktivists and, mm-hmm. and, you know, fake people trying to say, oh, I'm with you on this. I'm with you on this. And I understand that there are like, there are things going on in everyone's life, but it, it's tough when it's, it's the same people you see and you see like the emotional toll of burnout on them. I feel like everyone that I know that was like out in the streets is completely burnt out, still burnt out, but, you know, still putting in that work and something that I think that has been really like, difficult for me to see this summer was, you know, I'm from, I was born and raised in Richmond, um, grew up in Northside. It was really difficult to watch, you know, just those images and, you know, what was happening on Monument Avenue and, you know, what was happening to protesters. I think what's even more frustrating is to see like gentrification, you know, police violence and, you know, issues of poverty and houselessness. It's just, it's been a little frustrating to like, I guess, watch that growing up and still seeing like those issues still kind of are like a problem in Richmond. And I think that Charlottesville is like very much similar, especially like these big universities take so much from our cities, right? Um, that was also something I guess that was really frustrating to watch this summer was just how VCU and UVA, these institutions that take so much from their communities, they really gave nothing back and they weren't supporting, you know, people on the ground trying to change the city for the better. Yes, I definitely noticed that, especially with the rise of all these protest movement courses on campuses. I don't know if you all's university have a protest movement course now, but, you know, after we were criminalized for trying to teach the people a radical imagination, now they're getting paid thousands of dollars to put it on the bill for the next semester. It's crazy. Oh, we we did experience that, and we we fought it. At VCU, they tried to implement a COVID and protest course. And that's really interesting to me because organizations have been attempting to do the exact same thing and have faced academic repercussions, have gotten slapped with student conduct violations, have been threatened by our university's administration with, you know, suspensions and not being able to register for courses all while they're trying to teach this course that is from the viewpoint of the Richmond community, is from the viewpoint of community organizers, is from the viewpoint of people who have actually experienced state oppression, state suppression, and they 
wanted to have a white man teach this course, but we were able to get them to remove the course completely from this semester's class registration. The professor sent out an email with how he apologizes for anybody who was offended by this. It was not his intention, yada, yada, yada. Luckily, now, from the student government standpoint that I have, they're in conversation about reaching out to community organizers and reaching out to people of the Richmond community who have firsthand experience with these things about putting it in for fall 2021. Congrats to everyone on VCU's campus that made that happen. And I really do want to get into, you know, how you all are continuing to bring the fire to the campus. How are you all continuing to talk about things like abolition and defunding, disarming and dismantling police in the state of Virginia? I think as student organizers, there's a history of holding our our administration accountable because like what Mickey was saying, the intention of that course was to teach basically like lived experiences of, of people through like, a, yeah, like a whitewash lens. And I think it's important that, especially organizing at VCU for last year and a half of experience that there's like a complete disconnect between the student activists who are talking about like real stuff going on in the Richmond community and then what the VCU administration thinks is the right course of action. That's obvious, like with every uh, university administration, but like VCU, it's like, especially at the beginning, we would go into these like meetings with people, establish some sort of change, some sort of system of accountability. And like the cluelessness that the university administration was displaying was like, I had me gobsmacked, honestly, and like the disconnect between the student concerns and then the administration concerns really highlighted that a lot of the university's uh, influence and attention to issues really only stems from things that can affect their money or gain them from having money. Meanwhile, as student organizers, we're basically just trying to get basic COVID protocols instilled uh, for so long, so, so long. We were trying to get police out of uh, the mental health situation and uh, crises and separating the dispatch. And that finally happened this May after a long struggle. And then also just like talking about like the issues of the gentrification of Richmond, um, what the impact on homeless and uh, housing insecure residents are, um, about how VCU is trying to essentially make the university a top tier uh, attraction for students while also swallowing up huge swaths of the city. And the implications of that are pretty uh, unimportant, it seems, to, to the administration. So I think really that disconnect is kind of one of the biggest things that we've experienced so far. The biggest message that Student Power VCU was trying to push over the past couple of months with organizing was trying to get students who are attracted to coming to Richmond. They want to live in a city, you know. Richmond has this nice, like, almost like hippie, like inclusive vibe to it. And students are like, oh yes, VCU, it's an art school. I'll be accepted here, you know, I'll find my place. And then they never leave campus. The farthest they go is Carytown. They, do, they don't know anything about the city of Richmond and VCU profits off this diverse and inclusive slogan to draw students in where there's a place for you here, you know, everybody fits in, look at our diverse population. But half of the minorities at VCU are silenced. Half the minorities at VCU do not get a chance to really have the experience that they were promised 
And we've been trying to get students to understand that, you know, before this was VCU, this was Richmond. You come here for four years, you, without knowing it, without the intention, you are actively contributing to the gentrification of Richmond. Yeah. And it's really your responsibility. It is your job as somebody coming to the city that is not yours to fight against that, to help the people in this community outside of your 17 floor hotel looking dorm room that Richmond and VCU have just collaborated to build where it, it literally looks like a hotel. I don't blame students for not leaving. I wouldn't leave either. There's a pool table, there's all these nice amenities, like it's ridiculous. It's a gentrification that VCU is putting on this city, buying every building on West Broad Street, further pushing out locals, further pushing out people who have been here for years who are losing their jobs, who are losing their homes. It is your responsibility to acknowledge that. It's your responsibility to be aware at least. And then one thing that Mickey said that was really important, I think also, and then tying this all the way back to the greater issues of policing, VCU prides itself on saying that we're one of the most diverse student bodies in the country. And yeah, that may be true, but the experience of black and brown students compared to like predominantly white students is, is huge in the sense of uh, the amount of profiling that black and brown students have to deal with uh, consistently on campus compared to the white students makes it to where there is a difference in, in university life, basically. So I think that's another thing. The Richmond Police Department, the VCU Police Department, everyone's in cahoots with each other, establishing and, and enhancing this, this idea of the police state on our campus. So I think, I think that's another huge part of it, too, just the vast difference in terms of student experience. If not even just police presence, but the mere fact that VCU's police force is so large, it's the largest in the state. For a campus which has similar population to UVA, our police force is almost, what, triple? Yeah, and I think Richmond has, I want to say like 230,000 people. If you take mm -hmm. Norfolk, that's 260,000 people. Tell me why ODU has 55 full-time police officers. Right. We have 99. It's absolutely ridiculous. And now we're learning as time is going on that VCU police and Richmond police have created an even stronger bond in which they work together to not only harass students, but the Richmond community. We've had students get pulled out of dorms in which they live in because there was a false accusation that they were, you know, trespassing on VCU property. Students walking through Monroe Park get racially profiled by VCU and RPD regularly. And so many meetings that we have had with VCU PD discussing the constant lack of safety in which students should be feeling from their police force, the lack of accountability and action that police are not taking when students actually report misconduct, actually report feeling unsafe, being harassed, being followed, being stalked. There is absolutely no action. Students have had to go to Twitter to spread information, to make other students feel 
aware of what is happening so other students can protect themselves. And it's not until large numbers of people are upset on social media that VCUPD in their Twitter account likes to pop up and say, please, please call this number, da, 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 da. Please report through the app, this, that, and the third. And it's like students should not have to go through these loopholes. Students should not have to go through all of these back alleyways to get security and safety when there's how many police officers on our campus, how many VCU police cars patrolling campus at all hours just to get somebody to talk to them, just to get somebody to answer them. And students have had to report individual police officers. Students have come to the Student Power Account. Students have spoken with other leaders on campus about being harassed by actual police officers. And when we bring this up in our meetings, it's never a approach in which they take action within the police force itself. It's please give us the name of the officer. Please right. report this individual officer so we can deal with it. Right. And in the sense that it's not about a single police officer, it's not about a single student. It's about a system which allows, you know, multiple people to continue to have the same experience. Right. You're listening to WRIR 97.3 LP, Richmond Independent Radio. We actually talk a little bit about kind of like police on campus in general. This is very similar issues. Um, for example, like, you know, um, Timothy Longo is our vice president of safety and security at the university. For those who do not know, Tim Longo also testified in the case for Freddie Gray in favor of the officer being free, basically saying like, uh, you know, the officer used the correct amount of force. There's no negligence. The police officer wasn't basically guilty in the death of Freddie Gray. Um, he also, Tim Longo also worked for the Baltimore police for like 30 years, I believe. Baltimore PD, of course, being like one of the most notorious, horrendous police precincts in the country. Um, so yeah, and I think that, again, that kind of like sets that tone, right? At the university, you know, how are we, how are we supposed to be black and brown students? How, how are we supposed to feel safe here, right? Like setting that tone of like how police kind of handle situations on campus and actual crime and harm and things like that. Um, and university administration as well, handling harm and crime. We were actually in a documentary, like I think in 2014, uh, basically about like sexual assaults on campuses. And we like had like very few number of sexual assault cases like tried and, you know, people uh, kicked out of school for committing sexual assault. Um, but however, like one thing that UVA likes to really pride itself on is like quote unquote, like student governance. Um, for example, we have like an honor council. And like in the same year that like very few number of sexual assault cases were like tried at the university, like almost a hundred kids were like tried in the honor court, you know, for honor violations. And of course, every, one of the main like things that people have complained about is that honor um, you know, really targets international students and student athletes that tend to be, you know, black. So that's, it's been, again, it's like not even just the police, right? It's even like UVA has somehow like managed to create like, you know, students, you know, masking student governance, which is actually just like students policing each other. Something that I, I am excited about, I will say, UVA does have kind of a rich history 
of student activism on campus. With that being said, um, you know, there's been a rich history of, you know, co-opting and if kind of falling silent on administration's ears. Like for example, like our Black Student Alliance, which I'm also part of, you know, has been demanding basically since like 1970, like a living wage and, you know, defunding of the police and like also getting JRTC off the campus, all those demands. But again, that's been for 50 years. Um, people have been advocating around that and it's just either like fallen on deaf ears or you know people have been like okay like UVA loves to do like task force um, like after what happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, protests they like did this like racial equity task force and they're like okay we're gonna like really tackle this this issue of race on campus and it's like okay, if you really want to tackle it like you know you would listen to black and brown students that have been asking for you know things for 50 years. Um, you know, you would get rid of the library that was named after, after like a guy that promoted race sciences. And I think, you know, I think that's really important um, to like recognize also how like universities, especially UVA, like VCU, how they kind of like, like all these issues are very like connected. Like, you know, like the fact that, you know, there isn't a living wage, you know, the fact that, you know, labor organizing is very difficult in Virginia and it's difficult to do on campuses, you know. Um, also, it's hard to like organize around defunding the police or like, you know, like accountability. So yeah. Also, um, something I will add, there is a new group on UVA's campus. It's called UVA Beyond Policing. It's an abolitionist group. I'm very excited to see what they do and to see, um, yeah, what comes of that group. Yes. Well, I thank you all for coming on and sitting down and talking to me. It's always a great day when I get some VSP and students on. If y'all just want to tell folks where they can follow you and keep up with your work or your campus's work, I will let y'all out of here. Yeah. If you go to VCU or are interested in following what Student Power at VCU is doing, our Instagram is called Student Power VCU. And that is the same for our Twitter account as well. Yeah, if people want to go ahead and follow on Instagram and Twitter, UVA Beyond Policing. Again, they're going to do a lot of great work. I'm really excited to see what comes from them. Also, if y'all want to follow the YDSA at UVA, um, our Instagram handle is at UVA underscore YDSA. Amber Chehochevkadas, Ishte Muskogi Omez, Ishti Chadi Omez, Ishti Leshti Omez. Hi, everybody. My name is Amber. Uh, I am a citizen of the Muskogee Creek Nation. Um, I'm also of Shawnee Uchi Kwapa descent. And I am also very proud to be a Black African American woman. Uh, uh, I do a lot of work around or speak to a lot of um, issues around Black and Native identity in the intersection of like Black, um, Black liberation and Indigenous sovereignty and how both of those movements, though unique, um, intersect, especially when we're speaking to settler colonialism, white supremacy, and racial capitalism. And so uh, a lot of my work is trying to get 
you know, Black and Native folks start having conversations or not necessarily get, but encourage those conversations so that we can start moving towards an actualized Black liberated future and an authentic Indigenous sovereign future. Uh, but it's going to take us communicating with one another and working together because we do have a mutual oppressor who would love so much for us to see each other as the oppressor and, and use lateral violence as means of like harm to keep us distracted. And so I think, you know, the work that I'm doing is hopefully like we're having conversations of how we move past seeing one another as the oppressor and seeing the oppressor for who they really are. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, I, I'm seeing progress and I, I'm grateful to folks who, you know, value you know, like anything I have to say around these topics. Uh, so, um, you know, I just want to say thank you for having me and thank you for valuing my voice even before I really start to talk. So, yeah. <laughs> motto as we say in Muskogee, thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I'm going to hop right in. Let's talk about the presidency. Uh, we know that the Biden and Harris regime um, has recently assumed office. A lot of people have mistakenly assumed that, you know, the myth of white supremacy has been abolished since Trump is no longer in power. As an Afro-Indigenous cultural critic yourself, examining this new regime within the context of what you were talking about, settler colonialism, what would you say that the Biden and Harris administration represents for Black and Indigenous people in this time? So first, can I say I love that you're using regime <laughs> versus like you call <laughs> Yes, you gotta call um, it. I think it like, uh, I think it like really pays notion to like the fact that this is an empire. <laughs> So like, shout out to you for like <laughs> calling it a regime. Um, so I think for a lot of folks who voted um, for the Biden-Harris administration or regime, um, maybe weren't necessarily voting them in, but fascism out. And so it's like, this is the only choice that we may have had to quote, stop like a fascist from making our lives even harder. Um, I think especially in Indian country, we, we still see um, the U.S. as a settler state, right? And right. so by voting for a lot of us, it's like a compromise we're having to make, you know, because we know that the settler state isn't for our interests, right? As long as the settler state exists, our sovereignty is threatened, right? Like our ideas of like sovereignty are threatened. And so I think that what it represents for us is like Biden and Harris, though, quote, more progressive than a fascist system, they're still obligated to uphold the settler state. And so therefore it is, it's a contradiction to the fact that this is still native land, right? I do think that for some folks, we feel like now because we don't have someone who's a fascist, we might be able to, you know, see within this system, see policy that might help us towards our end goal, which is an actualized sovereign, you know, indigenous future. But I don't think that the majority of us trust that this, you know, administration is going to rescue us. The settler state is not going to rescue us. That's that's not its intent, right? It that would be self-destructive. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of hope for policies within the settler state to be less harmful to us, but it's not necessarily a means to an end of our actualized like sovereign future. Right, like some chances to interrupt fascism, criminalization, 
And so when you were like talking about, you know, that this administration, this regime is definitely not going to be the thing that liberates us. I want to look into maybe some potential hurdles. What are our next fights? You know, when we see that, you know, Biden has escalated the war on drugs, that he was the sponsor of the 1994 crime bill. And then we know that Kamala isn't innocent as well with her, her pushing of the war on truancy. In which ways do you expect this current administration to disrupt some of the radical imagination that's manifested? over the past year or so? Oh, that's a really good question. I I think, like I said, just the existence interrupts our radical, you know, (laughs) as long as that they're in these positions of like president and vice presidents. Again, those two positions are, require the maintenance of the settler state, require the maintenance of empire, right? Require the maintenance of power, you know, for a select few. And so, Um, You know, that was something I was also thinking, you know, as you were saying about like both Biden and Harris have been agents of this system, like even before they were like in positions of like top and, you know, second in command, like their whole political lives have been that. We see that with Biden from the beginning, you know, segregation is. And I think in a lot of ways he is like enculturated as a you know, enculturated in white supremacy in a way that he he still upholds that. When we think about people of color, uh, BIPOC folks like, you know, Obama and Kamala Harris, we have to think about the lines in which they had to toe to end up where they are, right? So mm-hmm. as far as like the hurdles are concerned, I think the biggest hurdle is that this political, you know, this empire does not want to be destroyed. And so if we have to use what appears to be representation, but actually is tokenism. We have to use black and brown folks to like project that we're making some progress. Like the settler state's gonna do that. They're gonna do whatever they have to do to like make us feel like progress is being made. And so those of us who are radical or trying to be radical in our lives, like I think we have an understanding that the the settler state cannot be radical. If it's radical, it will self-destruct. And so I think the hurdles are, we have to make sure that we are aware of tactics being used that look like progress, but really are kind of smoke and mirrors. We have to be aware of like breadcrumbs. We have to be aware of like what seems progressive, but really is still a means of like maintaining power. Yeah, it's hard because in order to uphold the empire we have, it requires militarization, right? It requires the oppression of like, Black and Indigenous people globally, right? And so um, our hurdles, a lot of them are around making sure we don't succumb to what seems like progress, but really is a reinforcing of power for our imperialist state. What would you define empire as? What would you define the settler state as for those who may not be aware of that terminology? You know, when I think about empire, I think about a government or a state that seeks to like go around globally and steal from other nations, right? Take resources at whatever cost in order to maintain its place at the top of the like global political pyramid, right? To empires will do whatever they have to in other countries to maintain being at the top by any means necessary. And so I say the U.S. is an empire. We decided either we're going to just you know, be about building up our country, or we're going to decide to like play war in other places and oppress other peoples for the sake of global power, global right. position, global resources. 
So that's what I mean by empire, that we, we're looking not only to harm the you know, people within our nation who we consider less than us, but we see the rest of the world as our curse, or we can take what we want from it and do what we you know, want with it and see those people as commodity, right? As um, tools of our own greed. Yeah. And so like you were talking about when it comes to this administration, our biggest obstacle is going to be not becoming complacent or buying into their narrative that everything's okay and there's normalcy and white supremacy yeah. has been dismantled. How can yeah. revolutionaries and those who are, like you said, striving to be radical kind of continue to interrupt criminalization and build strategies for liberation while we're still trying to fight to uh, dismantle the presidency as a institution? You know, I think about this question all the time for myself, like, how can I keep at this? And I think the one thing that I've been reminding myself is that our ancestors, our foremothers, our forefathers, our four, you know, non-binary, you know, ancestors, they have done this work right? We don't necessarily need to reinvent the will. We might need to like modify the will, but (laughs) I'm learning in during quarantine, I've been reading a lot of James Baldwin. Who else? Like my mind is thinking about all the people that I'm reading, but like, I'm just, I've been reading a lot of our ancestors work and they already knew like they were abolitionists before abolitionists was like something you could study, right? Like ancestors already knew that they had to run, right? They knew that staying on the plantation was not the place for them to be. And I think learning from our ancestors is really important because we don't have to reinvent this wheel. So I think reading is huge. I think realizing the importance of community, you know, I think that sometimes we get caught up on like who's the leader and who's, you know, who's in charge. And it's like, this is communal work we have to do. Like, you know, somebody might have a larger platform, but they need us as much as we need them, right? Like we we have a shared responsibility. Um, I think it's also really important for us to realize like self-determination is valuable. Autonomy is valuable. Like we need to understand that we're capable, that we as black, brown, indigenous peoples are brilliant. We never needed colonialism to tell us who we are, who we were prior to like, you know, colonialism. We knew how to read the stars. We knew how to feed ourselves. We knew how to like live in harmony with nature. And that doesn't mean we were perfect, but perfection is not required of us. And I think that that's also really um, something that we as organizers and activists, like we think we have to get it right all the time. And, you know, there is sometimes there's harm in like our mistakes, but really I want us to not see our position, you know, as activists um, or organizers or um, revolutionaries is like, you know, we have to have a marketing plan and then we have to have like an outline. And we, you know, it's like we sometimes we just need to run, right? Sometimes we just need to get off the plantation and like we will figure it out as we go. Um, so I just want us to like remember that we're brilliant. I want us to remember that it's okay to like um, make mistakes and try again. And that I think we also need to listen to each other. You know, I was in a conversation earlier about like how Black and Native folks, how can we actually have solidarity? And I think it does start with like listening to one another and validating one another's harm. Like this has happened to me and to be like, I see you, I see your harm. And I know that this is a real thing. So let's, let's like work together now to make sure this doesn't happen again. You know, that was (laughs) fire. That was the word. Sometimes you just need to run and get off the plantation. (laughs) Seriously, That is a synopsis of everything I just said. Yes.
It's been great um, getting, like I said, to sit down and talk with you. Where can folks follow your work and keep up with this fire that you be spitting? <laughs> well, uh, thank you. I'm online as Melanin Muskogee. So Melanin and then Muskogee is spelled in our traditional spelling. So M, V as in Victor, S-K-O-K-E. So Melanin Muskogee on Twitter and at Melanin Muskogee on Instagram. And I want to like point out that it's hard sometimes to see myself as a leader. I think I have a problem with like authority in general. And so I don't want people to see me as an authority um, just because of my own stuff. Um, but that like, I see people as being in community with me on online. Um, and like, I learned so much from folks as much as like, I, you know, people tell me they learn from me. So I just want y'all to know that if you quote, follow me, like, you're not a follower. We're in community with one another. So that's my way of like sticking it to my idea of authority. <laughs> That is all for Race Capital this week. Solidarity to all who continue to oppose the police state. Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3, Richmond Independent Radio. 